Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars, transport and culture. I'm David Brown. This week we've been driving a lot of new cars, including a three-day jaunt in the new Mazda CX-60, but we're not allowed to talk about it just yet. So I've asked our good friend Alan Zervis to have a chat about a range of subjects, including our social media post about the mid-60s Chrysler Valiant that tried to compete with Falcons and Holdens. The post has been seen by over 33,000 people, and the comments are a wonderful array of memories, mostly good. Alan also mentions a video of a car crash involving an electric vehicle and the unexpected results. And we review in detail the new Hyundai Kona small SUV. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or social media, our Facebook and Instagram sites, search for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 15th of July, 2023. So to begin the program, I put up a post on Facebook about a picture I saw of around a 1965-66 Valiant station wagon, and it produced a huge number of comments and reminisces. Let's reflect on a few of those now, and to help me do that, I have on the line our good friend from Gay Car Boys, Alan Zervis. G'day, Alan. David, how are you? Very good. I was talking and I was a bit confused whether it was the AP5, which was around 1963 to 65, or the AP6, which goes from 65 to 66. Now, AP, of course, stood for Australian Production. This was Chrysler's effort at taking on the Ford Falcon and the General Motors uh, Holden as uh, as we knew it. But I think both of those models of Valiant were better looking than either the Holden or the Ford of the time. A lot of takeoff of the North American 1964 Plymouth Barracuda, particularly the AP6 and the grille with the insert bit in the front. One of the comments that uh, I got confused as to whether the model I saw was a 5 or a 6, Alan, I think uh, someone said in a um, cover of a magazine that proved the point. Well, David, you uh, only need to refer yourself to the modern motor, I think, of uh, 1964. January, yes. Two shillings and sixpence. Andrew sent in a copy of it, and it clearly showed that the model, the AP5, was compared to the EH Holden at the time, both utilities. So the model I had was the model after that. Now, Now, we had a flood of comments about the features and the specifications of the car. Alan, uh, Mark sent in a comment. He did. He knows far more about it than I do. He said uh, it's an AP6 Safari. Middle model, family pack. The Slant 6 came with a column shift auto replacing the button or three-speed manual. Now, by that, he means the push button and the slide-down lever for park. Mm. Uh, But with Synchro on first, he thought. There were rubber mats, a bench seat in the front, and and a wind-down rear window in the tailgate. Graham even bettered the details in that. I'm going to paraphrase. He gave a 200-word dissertation. But in summary, he said the AP6, as with the AP5 previous model, the station wagon rear styling varied depending on production dates. And the early build wagons used 1965 US 
Plymouth Valiant Wagon style taillights. He went through and even mentioned some of the parts numbers. Alan, I won't repeat them here, but he said then in conclusion there were four different wagon taillights across the two models, the AP5 and 6. But Alan, there was one feature that many people mentioned. Alexander said, I grew up in an AP5 safari wagon with push-button auto. So there you go, that's the push-button with the pull-down lever for park. It's a reoccurring theme that came over it too. But the other thing was all in the family. There were many that did it. Now, Doreen said, I loved ours. His name, no, it didn't say it, it is his name, was Jacko. And uh, she puts a mum in here. Mum would drag cars all the time. Carl uh, then went on to say one of my uncles had one. It could easily fit their family of eight into it. But, Alan, I think someone bettered that. Vi said, memories of my late father's valiant. He called it his bus. <laughs> it was green with safari leopard seats. Good God. <laughs> his valiant station wagon transported, get this, 10 family members. Very reliable vehicle. But I would say not very safe if it's got 10 people in it. Safety is not in these reflections because Gordon added there should be 11 kids in the back of what they're going to is the cricket. But I think uh, there's some are still going, Alan. Well, Dan said he's still got, and I quote, my old VC, although it's a bit shabby compared to that one. And they did. They were left to rust at the side of the road. It's uh, it's almost criminal. They kept going. They're a good car, but uh, rust was a problem. But there were also a lot of trips. Now, Lorraine said, my parents bought one of these new off-the-showroom form when I was quite young, seven or eight maybe. It was an olive green station wagon, and the Reggio was, and she even listed that. Isn't it funny how people remembered the Reggio? I clearly remember the new car smell. It made me physically nauseous. To this day, I don't like new car smells. It was a beautiful car, though. The boot was big enough to set up a mattress in it for me on long trips. Again, your point, Alan, not a safety issue. I think it might have been the only brand new car my parents. And David, a separate David, said, I remember many trips to the beach in the back of one of these great days. And some other reflections, Alan? Steve said mum and dad bought the same colour AP5 wagon around the late 1960s, one of the most reliable cars they ever had. Went everywhere in it, towed a caravan, God forbid. Finally moved it on in the mid to late 70s after a new car upgrade. Bet they regret that now. Well, it's probably worth a lot of money. You don't see many of them around, do you? Well, they had a big problem with rust, and I think by the time they got on to the late 60s when they bought out the VG, I think it was, I can't remember which model I had, but I had the VIP, they were looking pretty sad, and they changed around that time too from a torque flight to a Borgwarner transmission, which uh, I think was uh, probably not the best decision. The torque flight seemed smoother to me. Phil said the five was full width. Again, here we get into the detail. Full width, stainless grill bats and heavier looking headlight rims. Most were a push button, he, he mentioned there. Unfortunately, though, the virtual bulletproof mechanically, the rust monster ate most of them, which I think uh, com comes up your point. It does indeed. There were some unfortunate incidents which reminds us of something that happened at the time. Some may remember the old aerials on cars and the fact that people used to bust them off. Now, Lorraine referred to her parents buying a Valiant 
And then her brother wrote in and said, uh, Brother Albert said, Hey, sis, I remember well the new car. Saw it for the first time when mum and dad, I think you too, came along to Inesville in Queensland to see me. Many years later in Darwin, I bought a 67 VC Valiant Regal, which was a V8. But he then added, Do you remember the radio aerial stump on the Valiant? We were visiting friends outside the church one night. You were sitting on the bonnet, then slid off over the stump. Nice long cut up on your left leg. Luckily, not deep, but enough to warrant going to the hospital to have it cleaned and examined. Uh, Lorraine wrote back, Alan, didn't she? She did, and gosh, can I tell you, I felt that while you were saying it. <laughs> Lorraine said, I do remember that occasion. We were outside the house with one of my friends in Jinjili. I got 13 or 14 stitches in said gash, which was about five inches long and a quarter of an inch wide. David, I don't know how big that is. Some old measurements I don't understand. <laughs> yes, it makes me cringe when I think about it. Those old sharp ends that were left when someone bent and, and ultimately broke it off. Well, they kind of crimped them almost, didn't they? When they bent over, it crimped the end that was left. Yeah. And it was it was got sharper than a, a, at the top of a tin with done with a tin opener. They did develop some nicknames. One person wrote in and said, here's my old Calabresi neighbours, Dog of War. Now, that's one of the earlier valents. Still regoed and still ripping after 63-odd years I think he meant that as not clear on the date, although maybe it was 63 specifically very odd years. Anyway, a Valiant service. Now, Alan, there were some nicknames to the Valiants, I believe. And some of the nicknames of the Valiants were the Greek Mercedes, the Marrickville Mercedes, and the Vatican Mercedes. Now, I guess that depended on what town you came in, and uh, we just called them the Purple Monsters. Someone called them also the Kiwi Station Wagon. And one of the more recent comments too, Alan, I had was Wendy wrote in and said, my first car was an AP5 Valiant. I paid $580 for it in 1975. Gosh, that was uh, that was actually a lot of money in 1975, but you got a lot of car. A lot of metal, if there's any that hadn't rusted. So the Valiants, the old Valiant, a critical part of our history. Alan, we'll come back after the break and talk about a few stories that you've sent in. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi released the premium A8 saloon late last year and it cuts an imposing presence. Big, athletic, sleek and stylish, the A8 is everything a prestige saloon should be. We drove the A850 TDI Quattro. This comes with 217 kilowatts of power and a healthy 600 newton metres of torque, driving through the brilliant Quattro all-wheel drive system and an 8-speed Tiptronic transmission. The beauty of this combination will see the A8 go from 0 to 100 in under 6 seconds and have a top speed of 250 kilometres an hour and economy of just 6.7 litres per 100 k's. All this in a luxury limousine that has a familiar Audi interior. This means well laid out with excellent driver ergonomics and functional. The seats cocoon the occupants both front and back and allow you to consume huge distances and arrive feeling relaxed. Both models come well equipped to standard but for those buyers that want more, Audi has cleverly bundled together some appealing option packs. The Audi A850 TDI Quattro is priced from a touch under $203,000 plus the usual costs. This is a Motoring Minute, I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. So back with Alan Zervis, our good friend. Alan, a replacement of batteries has been an idea 
that you could uh, perhaps pull the old battery out and put one new one in already charged without having to wait around to charge the old one. But you saw a detachable battery on a video on the internet. In fact, someone sent it in. It was uh, not a couple of the car forums. And they had this amazing rear dash cam view of this Audi e-tron that had run a red light and was hit side on. Now, it went to, looking back at it, it went to the left and it looked like a pretty normal old rollover, pretty serious, until you saw the whole battery pack flying in the opposite direction. across. Now, can you imagine half a tonne of battery that had just detached itself from the car and went sliding along the road? Can you imagine that? slicing through someone the audi had gone through a red light and there was a pedestrian there one would have to say that was a bit of a close call i'd run out and buy a lotto tick if i was there a battery sliding over that way i suppose that uh, removes the possibility of the driver being caught in a fire but perhaps not in a very good way there was a suggestion many years ago to having electric buses in sydney that you could slide the battery pack out and slide a new one in. I'm not suggesting in any sort of uh, lighthearted way that this reflects that. You also saw some videos on building batteries. How many people were involved? Well, not a lot, David. Not a lot of people were involved in building (laughs) batteries. And I suppose once you go into those factories, you realise that uh, robots are doing most of the work and certainly all of the heavy work. Design's all done by humans, but that's probably going to be done by AIs in the future, no doubt. The batteries are moving around on little sleds that were all automated and uh, every robot was putting the things together. It's an interesting development. You know, we talked about this to the the guy the other day, the associate professor, um, who was uh, talking about the possibility, of course, of even making batteries out of cheaper materials, which aren't as efficient, but they're much, much cheaper. You could use it not only in cars. I think his point was that if you wanted mass storage at home, it wouldn't really matter what the weight of or the size of the battery was. I know a colleague that has a business that's put in lead-acid batteries for the simple reason he doesn't have to move them around. He's got space, and so he has these big lumpy things. Uh, squashed his finger a bit when they were moving them around, but not that he was having to lift it or anything. Well, indeed, I've got a friend who's got, uh, he calls them the deep cycle batteries. But uh, when I worked in Telstra many, many years ago, in fact, it was telecom, many, many years ago in the exchanges, that's, of course, what st- exchanges run off is batteries. And, uh, or, or should I say, it's it's DC. If you've ever wondered why telephone exchanges don't go down when the power goes out, it's because they use those batteries. So a friend of mine nicked a couple of old ones, and that's what he runs his uh, solar off. We won't mention names. It allegedly nicked. <laughs> they were being thrown out. Oh, I see. So they'd reached reached the end of their life. But, David, that speaks to what you and I often talk about, which is recycling, upcycling, or otherwise cycling. Yes, indeed. I popped in and picked up a BYD today, and they had the sled there on which they build the cars. Gee, the electric engine in the front was small. It's incredible. I I couldn't get over, you know, the battery's obviously big, and, and, and as you say, but... Oh, the motor was it was tiny there was something about that battery that's they made a big hoo-ha about it being a blade battery but as i didn't know what a blade battery was it meant nothing to me it means they claim that its degeneration is negligible and after five ten you know or eight years you've only lost five or so percent 
Whereas if you remember the first Leafs that came out, you might have got a, a, a fair bit of in the, initially, but you certainly they deteriorated. I think they also reduced the possibility of burning. But again, talking to our mate from University of New South Wales, if we can get solid state batteries, then we reduce that risk of fire even further. Alan, we'll take another break again. Then we'll come back and talk about the Hyundai Kona. You're listening to Overdrive. In our chats about snow driving tips today, we have a look to see if winter tyres are needed in Australia. Specialised winter tyres are made slightly differently to other tyres. They have a higher level of natural rubber, different tread patterns and tiny grooves to improve traction. If you are spending 100% of your time in the snow, then they may be worthwhile. But they don't last as well in normal conditions and that's why they aren't so popular in Australia with a short snow season. The best tyre would probably be an all-terrain tyre as they have similar qualities to winter tyres and are better for 95% of your time spent under normal conditions. As with all tyres, there's a lot of choice even in all-terrains. There are more road-based styles and others with more aggressive, deeper treads and side lugs. For my Pajero, I chose Bridgestone Duelers, the D697LTs. These are a great balance between majority road-based use, some heavy-duty off-road work and the occasional snow trip. They have deep tread to clear the snow with grooves for better traction. They have a higher rubber content and while compliant, they are heavily cut and chip resistant. Even with the best tyres though, driving in the snow can be dangerous, so always be careful. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, back in 2018, Alan, you and I went to the launch of the first-generation Kona small SUV from Hyundai, and Kevin Teng was there. He was the creative manager for the Hyundai design in North America. He talked about it being advanced enough, but not too crazy, but it was distinctive in its design. He thought the slim head and tail lights gave it a kind of a modern touch without frightening people off. But of course, then he went on to point out that what look like the headlights, for example, are in fact just the running lights. The headlights are in a cluster down below. And he talked about that cluster down below at the front also being reflected in the back where the cluster of brake light and indicators were down low and sort of around the, the on the corner and around the corner of the back. Now, this new one's come out, and they, I'm not sure if he's been part of it still, but they have taken that much further, haven't they? The rear is one that you either going to love or hate. Hmm. Me, and I noticed you very smartly didn't ask me my feelings on the looks. What's your feelings on the looks? Oh, David, I think you'd have to tie a chop around it to get the dog to play with it. It's like a station wagon. It's a SUV. But the, the back of it has that big back panel. It doesn't protrude too much, yet it's slightly indented around the number plate down low, and it just comes out just a little bit at the top. It's almost a bustle, you know, like a lady's bustle, but not quite as pronounced. And when the light's down low and around on the corner, that just emphasises the back. I'm trying to think there was an older American a minivan or something that had lights like that, that uh, to my mind, it, it sort of does throw back to an older time. Yeah, well, I think there's there's definitely a feeling of, now, what was that hydrogen car that you and I had? The Nexo. The Nexo, Nexo. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, David, of the Nexo with the horizon line. I think that's what they're calling that kind of light bar effect. Ah, yeah, they have light bars across the front and across the back. 
Mm. That is a very, very thin strip of light. You've seen it on things like the Polestar and that. It's changing the look of cars, particularly coming to you at night. That's right. Well, of course, with the, the invention of LEDs, it's brought all sorts of fun and games. And, and cars put on these amazing light shows when you start them up. The Polestar does that little kind of roll around the kind of hands gripping the back of the car and then across the light bar. And uh, and I think the Kona would probably do the same thing. No, uh, you went along for that launch for us. So let me say this. It's a Hyundai. So it is well advanced in terms of the features and comfort factors that are involved in specification, but also its safety. Not only does it have the list of most, if not all, of the most common safety features at least, including things like rear traffic alert, which I just love. Mm. You know, if you're backing out of the shopping centre car park, it will tell you if there's a car or even a pedestrian there. I love that. But not only has it got that, but they're well developed. You know, you and I like the lane keep assist it keeps you in the lane without wandering around. It centres you in the centre of the lane rather than going near to the line on one side and then moving away a bit and maybe going near the other. Hyundai and Kia and, uh, have got that particularly well, haven't they? They have, and we often put that to the test at that uh, highway, bit of highway out near your place with all the lines going all over the shop. Mm. And it's uh, you know part of the construction of the road, I suppose, left over from when it was being built or repaired or whatever. Uh, the Hyundai Group cars seem to have that fairly well. They seem to look at the sides of the road as well. And uh, that's one thing I've noticed is that they have a feature where they'll follow the car in front but they can also detect the sides of a road even if there's no painted line. This card, they're going to be able to update over the air, you know, the internet. Now, that sounds like a potentially good idea. And, for example, the BYD that we picked up today has got the same thing. The only thing that worries me is that every time you go on to use a bit of software, they've updated it and changed something they didn't need to change. I think you're right. Well, and, and David, to highlight that, I got into a car this afternoon and it took me ages to find how to raise the heads up display ah. it was too low for me so instead i had to raise my seat to an uncomfortable level and then i tried to save the seat position and i couldn't 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 work out how to save it all of the heads up display things are in the menu except for the raising and the lowering guess where that is down below the dashboard on the right hand side you would think that's the first place i look but no it's on the little toggle that goes to the side mirrors, whichever one you want to adjust. Oh. The up and down bit is for the heads-up display. The side bit seems to be for the mirrors. I mean, that's French for you. I hopped in a car. I always look for cruise control, and I know I should stop and do like a pilot, do a pre-check. We were pressed for time. and just hopped in a new car and drove, and it didn't say cruise control. It said mode. Oh, good Lord. That's so annoying. I really became quite dangerous that uh, you know while I, I thought I thought to look at it and I gave up you know I didn't I didn't spend the time mm. now the interesting thing about the Kona is that while they talk about minimalist approach and that's fine they beep at you for every single Ooh, little thing now don't tell me it's got that overspeed warning that the Hyundai groups rolling out Alan it's got so many I've lost track oh if you look down to try and find out what it means, it beeps at you for not looking up at the road. Well, so it should, David. I've driven with you, remember? 
No, but, but actually there's a design issue there, isn't there? If I'm falling asleep or I'm not paying attention or talking and looking at uh, the passenger, sure, tell me that, or for any reason. But if I'm getting beeped because I'm having to look away, we should try and get around that. But is that my fault or is that a design fault of the car? Well, there's a design fault in that car, and that is that the speed sign recognition system also includes an overspeed warning and audible alert that you can't turn off. Mm. So every time you go over the speed limit, it beeps at you. And you might say, well, Alan, drive under the speed limit. And I pointed out to you today when we returned some cars that it's not always showing the right speed. So it might be showing 40 in a 50 or 60 zone for a school zone, or you might be driving behind a, beside a 60, 50 kilometre zone on a highway and you're doing 110 and it's beeping at you every five minutes and you can't turn it off. And the only way you can is to turn off the whole speed sign recognition system. Yeah, that's with some Kias and other things as well. I was only with it for a day and a half, so I cannot go through all the detail and know that I, I've covered all the things that I might want. And by the way, they've only just launched the uh, internal combustion engine ones. The all-electric one will come later in the year. Now, there's a great... Well, it's an issue with the Kona, of course, is that it's built to do both. And so it may not use the interior space quite as efficiently as an all-electric vehicle. Because an all-electric vehicle, as we said earlier, with smaller engines and no drivetrains, even if it's a all-wheel drive, you have a motor in the back and the front. So you don't have that big uh, uh, tunnel down the middle of the, the, the seat mm. and that. You can You can use the space much better. I'm not sure that you can if you've built the fundamental model to cope with both. Well, you can't, but I think we've run into that problem before with things like uh, Polestar and uh, XC40 and X, what is it, C40, where they've got uh, a shared ICE electric platform mm. uh, and they've just put the batteries in where they can. They've done a pretty good job of it just the same. But one advantage of that is that the floor is not quite so thick. So, you know, when you get into the car, the floor is not so high. Ah, yes, of course, the batteries are underneath. Yeah, yeah. So in the ones that are shared with the ICE, the centre tunnel is packed with batteries. Yeah, there are horses and courses for that, isn't there? Swings and roundabouts, David, swings and roundabouts. And, of course, one swing and roundabout that should be particularly applicable to you today would be the fact that most electric cars won't have uh, spare tyres. <laughs> Tell them about it. Tell them why that's a, tell them why that's funny. I have been uh, the pleasure of driving the Kia EV6 GT model, modern, all electric, and the acceleration is ballistic. I will be reporting on that at a later time once I've calmed down. Tell me about the tire, David. At 21-inch rims and very low-profile tyres. And I hit a pothole. It's actually a very small, thin, temporary median, not one of the wide medians, medians. Uh, and I was only turning around. Uh, it was in the middle of a whole pile of construction, and I hit this. It was an almighty bang. It didn't, didn't affect the rim, which was a bit of luck, but the, the beading around the tyre bubbled out in one spot, not only in the front, and we checked, and it's also in the back as well, the back tyre as well. You're kidding. One on the same side? Yeah. Good look. But it's it's not that it had bowled. It, 
I've never seen this, David. The the whole the bit of the beading that is behind the rim actually ripped away from the wall of the tire, exposing the underneath bit of the tire. I've never seen that happen before. And can I just say, congrats on showing me something for the first time. That's my role, Alan. Uh, you, had, you had to break it to do it, but you know, hey ho. So we were talking about the uh, Kona, and by the way, it's increased in size, as you not surprisingly in this regard. It does also have a real performance model. The base models have CVTs. They drive it on some lovely country roads and quite enjoyable. Roads, Alan, that you and I might have used years past as an alternative to the highways. Now, the high, you know, cutting across to the New England Highway, up through the back of the Hunter Valley there, mm, mm. through Wollamai. It reminded me of those times. You wouldn't dream of doing it now. It's just you know poor quality roads with twists and bends. And certainly if you were trying to be efficient and quick, it's not the way to go anymore. But uh, interesting that uh, this new Kona, its price has increased. It's about thirty-two and will go up to about $45,000, a small SUV. And the good, the bad, and the ugly on the looks, well, that's up to people to make their mind up. Alan, always been uh, great to cover a range of subjects with you. I thank you very much for your time. As always, David, it's been my pleasure. And that's Alan Zervis from Gay Cowboys, where we pontificated on a full range of subjects. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, all the comments from our friends and listeners, and Mark Wesley for the help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And for access to the social media, look up Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.